really delighted to have uh, Bishop Mike Hill with us, the Bishop of Bristol, and we're going to have a little conversation today about ministry uh, in the UK, but ministry in general. And so, Bishop, welcome. Thank you. Glad, glad you're here. You're an old friend, uh, but we'll get to know you in a minute. But first, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us and that you would uh, raise those up to proclaim that message of uh, redemption and release in Jesus. And we thank you for the ministry of uh, our brother Mike Hill and the ministry of Bristol Diocese. And uh, we pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in the Church of England, uh, as well as all those around the world uh, who claim the name of Jesus. Uh, Holy Spirit, come and be in our midst this morning. Fill our hearts, direct our eyes to what you would have us see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Bishop, tell us a little bit. Uh, I know you've been here several times, but it, it, it's always helpful to hear. Uh, give us a, the elevator version of, of your testimony and tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are. Uh, well, okay, um, I, uh, I just wrote a thing in a local paper, I wasn't quite sure what I felt about this, it said, Hellraiser becomes bishop. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, uh, before I became a Christian, before God called me, uh, I lived a life that was deeply unworthy, uh, involved extreme violence, uh, petty crime, just stupid rich kids, son, fooling around kind of a life. And um, a friend of mine, my, my mother, who's Jewish, converted to the Christian faith at the age of 53. Though she had never worshipped as a Jew, she'd been a secular Jew. She basically sold women's clothes. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> So uh, she became a Christian. Interesting, through the pastoral care of this very aged vicar in, in our local church. And she had made some friends in the church. They had a son who was my age who was away at school and had no friends locally. So my mother volunteered me to become his friend. <laughs> cool. So I didn't like this kid at all. You know, he struck me as kind of well-behaved and... <laughs> generally tedious, and, and he phoned me one day and said, um, would I like to go to Yorkshire for a weekend? So I'm like, well, you know, why would I want to do that? He's, I'm a Lancashire man, explains that. He said, um, there's some great pubs there. So I'm like, right, I'll be there. Yeah, we'll go. <laughs> what he didn't tell me was we were staying at a Christian conference center run by a lay community of Christians. And apart from my mum, and I'm ashamed to say my father and I uh, just ripped it out of her mercilessly for being a Christian. Um, so uh, I go to this place. I'd never met Christians before apart from my mum. As I say, you know, we just mocked her. And um, this is how deluded I was, right? Because the women were nice to me. I, you know, I'm like, well, I'm really in here. You know, this is going to be fun. These women fancy me. And I didn't realize they were just generally being Christian and caring. And, 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 and they did not want it to go any further. That, yeah. Yeah, lots of us have made that mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of men, in fact. Yes. Yeah. Exclusive. So, yeah. So I... Um, 
I, I thought, I, you know, I need to come back here to find what's happening. And when I went back the second time, they started to talk to me about this man Jesus and transformative power of God in human lives. And, and uh, I'd suffered disappointment. I, I want to be a professional soccer player. I eventually told I wouldn't be good enough. So I was trying to process disappointment, and I think that in a way God kind of orchestrates things. That, that disappointment made me vulnerable to the grace of God in a way that I don't think I would have been vulnerable to it before. So we go back, and I heard a guy preach a sermon. He's preached on uh, Philippians 1 for me. Uh, I've forgotten it. <laughs> for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And um, at the end of it, he said, you know, I think God may be calling some of you to himself in here. And if you feel that, you know, I'd like you to stand up. And I'm like, not now, no, ever. And the next minute, I was standing up. <laughs> and I was sort of hustled off to this and this guy prayed with me. Uh, and then the next major challenge for me was church. I had no interest in, no cultural background in, never set foot in a church since I was baptized at the age of three months. Grateful for God's prevenient grace, but you know, it wasn't that memorable to me uh, at the time. So... Uh, I, I really struggle with the church. Uh, you know, uh, to me it was boring and it was... Uh, we got this very fierce uh, priest after that as our rector. Every Sunday he preached against the Pope, right? <laughs> I mean, I could tell you things about the Pope you wouldn't want to know. Eh? Not the present one, you know, past one. And, and I thought, is, you know, is this what it's about? Is it about positive negativity? Or is it, is it about me, through the grace of God, becoming what I could be? And I didn't want to be ordained. Uh, I'm one of the few people I know went to selection, praying that they'd say no. And, you know, I'm like, that's fine, God, I got a life. You know, and so when they said yes, I was a little, you know, perplexed by that. But it, that's where my ministerial life started. I was in business before uh, I was ordained, and I loved being in business. I'm still interested in business, though I don't have any business interests anymore. And so, what, tell us, mm -hmm. tell us, hello. Shout. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> It says low battery. The unforgivable sin. Um, hey, would you go find a sextant? I'm sorry. We're going to fix this. Um, so when you uh, went off to selection, went off, where did you do your theological training? And, and tell us a little bit about the ministries you were involved in yep. before you okay. ended up in Bristol. So even before uh, you were I went to Cambridge University, studied at Ridley Hall and Fitzwilliam College. Uh, Fitzwilliam College was the only college you would have me. That was a kind of sportsman's college. A reputation had it, you know, when you got interviewed by the uh, dean, uh, he would throw a rugby ball at you. If you caught it, you were in. 
and if you could drop kick it back into the waste paper basket, you get a scholarship. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went there and um, studied there for four years. And very kind, I was one of the last people who the Church of England paid for to do a postgraduate uh, qualification. And then I went to South London to a very downtown parish, a place called Addiscombe. Uh, worked with a, in our country, they always say your first job is a critical job. You know, it kind of sets them. I worked with such a godly man, such a faithful man. Had the privilege of uh, preaching at his funeral just two months ago. Uh, it was a great occasion. And then I went to uh, the Upton Lee Estate in Slough, which is near Heathrow. Made famous by The Office. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, The Office has got it about right, you know. <laughs> it really is a, not an interesting place. I was on a, a big, uh, large estate there uh, where... People were very ill-educated, but they were all Trotskyite communists, virtually. And although they weren't very educated, they could give you a great line on how the church was a kind of agent of the bourgeoisie, you know, designed to keep the workers oppressed kind of line, which is fascinating. I had a great, a very formative time for me there. Uh, I started with a congregation of five people. And three years on this estate, we had 120 people showing up in the church on Sunday and seasons of blessing like I've rarely seen uh, since. And then I went out of that to, it was like going to minister, it would be like having a little church over on the mountain. You know, it's a very, it's what we call in England the yacht and yogurt belt. <laughs> And um, I ministered amongst some of the most influential leaders in commerce and business for nine years. And then I got made, I don't know if you have them here, I was made archdeacon at that point. No, we don't, we don't have archdeacons, thankfully. Yeah, no, but, that's a really yeah. sharp move, I would say. So uh, I was archdeacon for six years, and I became Bishop of Buckingham, or Buckingham, as you would say. And, and that has nothing to do with the Queen's house. Uh, it's a county, and it's in the Diocese of Oxford, where most of my ministry was served. And I came down to Bristol 11 years ago. And uh, and tell us a little bit about um, what is what does your ministry look like? I mean, the UK seems to be about five years ahead of America on everything, and so I tried to warn America about UGS mm -hmm. uh, before they came here uh, to no avail. Um, but then, you know, the, the increasing secularism and uh, the, 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 the rate of, of Islam growing in the UK, and not just from immigration, but from conversions. Um, talk to us a little bit about your ministry and what does it look like in, in Bristol? Uh, well, it, I mean, it's been fascinating. I've been a bishop for uh, 17 years now, and I would say my ministry has... Uh, been pulled out of shape in many ways, not by bad stuff, but by good stuff, because I don't know what it's like here, but right now in the UK, governments are obsessed by passing laws, kind of randomly almost, you know, so the kind of statute book is huge, and, and so a lot of my job is the kind of oversight now of a big system of compliance. 
So it's about safeguarding, making sure that children and vulnerable adults are safe in our churches. It's about health and safety. It's about the kind of things that people in my age sit around dinner tables complaining about uh, most of the time. It's about, uh, so, uh, you know, that's, uh, I always say to people, that's not what flicks my switches. You know, what flicks my switches is my role as a preacher and a teacher and an evangelist. Uh, one of the things that I think the kind of conversion I went to kind of pulls you out of shape on a little bit is I've always been trying to build the kind of churches that would at least give the opportunity to the kind of guys I used to hang out with to at least hear the gospel. And, you know, I went back home. I've been back to my hometown three times, I think, in the last 50 years. I went back there last weekend. It was preaching there. And I met some of my old friends. And, you know, it was great in a way. But they're exactly the same as they were when they were 18 years old. They're still cheating on their wives, still sticking stuff up their noses, drinking. You know, I just thought to myself, you know, I wonder what God thinks when he sees these guys so hopelessly, you know, messed up really. You know, most of them had three or four wives. And Do you feel, like, I mean, sort of Second Corinthians played out that um, the mind being veiled to the gospel, that they just really can't even see reality? Yeah, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it, one of the things that, that, you know, we believe is that God reveals himself to, to people and... and um, yeah, I think their minds are veiled. I think the spiritual man understandeth not the things of the spirit. You know, that. that's the kind of... And, and in the UK, uh, the atheists are kind of confident. Not confident because they're creating loads of new atheists, although our latest census figure shows that people who name any religious affiliation is sunk by about 12% in the last... 10 years, they don't make new atheists. What they do is, uh, which would be a very natural bridge to do what you wanted to do and talk to you about the House of Lords, what, what they've done is they're shutting down the space in public life for any contribution from the faith communities. So now there are more secularists in the House of Lords than there are Christians. Uh, now... Uh, you can get the sack, you know, if you're a doctor or a nurse, if you prayed with a patient, even with the patient's permission. You know, these people are kind of newly confident and aggressive. But then I think they're threatened, so why wouldn't they be? But, but the irony of that is, and there you are, along with several other bishops in the church, serving as Lord Spiritual in the House of Lords. So you actually are you're a member of Parliament, or at least uh, the House of Lords. Yeah, um... So uh, I don't get there as much as I, I'd like to. That's partly because my suffragan colleague uh, developed cancer. About He was off work for 15 months getting fixed. Thank God he is fixed. Uh, and then he came back and went straight off on study leave. So it, it's very difficult for me to... <laughs> Very difficult for me to kind of get to London on a regular basis. Where, but, I, you know, I go as often as I can. The last thing that I was there for was... Uh, a riveting debate on something that's actually quite important but sounds terrible, um, mitochondrial replacement therapy. 
where the church was kind of wrongly reported in the press as being adamantly against it. This is basically manipulation. There are two ways to do it, and I won't bore you with that, but basically it, it will help uh, people who might have given birth to uh, children with a certain kind of uh, certain illnesses will give them the hope of not, but it does involve the kind of uh, mitochondrial matter of a third person. So, you know, the press set it up as three-parent families. and uh, So, it, I mean, that was resoundingly passed in favour in both houses uh, of Parliament. So, it, my thing is more... Um, uh, my portfolio, if you like, is... Um, Healthcare, and in particular, from my point of view, the economics of healthcare. You know, how are we going to pay for this welfare state that we set up? And is like it's. I mean, it's just so slightly out of control. Well, not slightly actually. It's just out of control. So we have to think about these things. Lots of good things about it, but affordability is. Would you say that then in England that? There, there's a sort of cultural amnesia um, because all around, I mean, you have an established church, uh, you have bishops in the House of Lords, uh, you of course have the Queen as the supreme governor of the church, and, and the contribution of Christian men and women through the centuries uh, in, in England who were very open uh, about their faith. And even those who might be considered unbelievers were, uh, were not always very hostile uh, to the faith. In fact, they at least knew their Bibles because they took it in school. So how, those, those days are yeah, gone. Yeah, and, and how did you get from there to where you are in, in 30 seconds? Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think, to be honest, we, I have to take some responsibility for saying that we were too quiet for too long. And, and while, that, while we were being quiet, it's like these people are forming their coalitions, getting their act together in the media. Uh, you know, I mean, in, one of the things that's really scary to me is that when a nation becomes godly, you know, very often this God calls his people to judgment. He says, what were you doing? You know, it's like the stuff in Ezekiel, you know, you, you shepherds of Israel, where were you? You know, why weren't you warning the people about what would happen? You know, I told you so. Mm. And uh, what is the perception of, of folks regarding the church in England? You know, I mean, are they kind of indifferent to that? Well, that's nice, they do charitable works, or, I mean, is, is there, um, and, and talk to us a little bit about where yeah. uh, you see God okay. a- moving in, I, in I the would, church. I would make the, um, uh, the distinction between uh, what uh, this made in the Acts of the Apostles. You know, in Acts 2, it says that the church enjoyed the favor of the people, in Acts 4, they've been told no longer to preach in the name of Christ. There's that kind of ambivalence. A lot of the kind of mercy stuff that we do, people appreciate, you know, the, the stats are out there and how many volunteer hours Christians put into local communities, etc., etc. They're all cool with that. What they don't like is our worship services and they don't like our message, um, which is pretty stifling. And uh, how, how is that articulated by the average person? By not coming. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, 
But you know, I mean, here you are. You're wearing your 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 clerical shirt, and yeah. uh, it's purple, and people recognize you as a bishop. I mean, do, does the needle go off the record when you walk into the room, and people sort of are startled, or or what? Or do they start making apologies? You know, what do they do? Um, I've always been. Uh, it, it's interesting because you you people in the South think that. Uh, we're very formal in the Church of England. In fact, we're much less formal than you are. You know, most days I don't wear my collar. And uh, and when I do wear I have to wear it when I'm going up to London. I find that with some people it would provoke a conversation, but what I've no way of knowing is the number of conversations it stops because I'm wearing it. Mm. And, and, you know... So I don't know how, whether it's helpful or whether it's a hindrance. You know, kind of all the old retired clergy is a mutter, 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 you know, wear your dog collar, mutter, mutter. And, and you know, they, I mean, they have some wild ideas, like uh, if there's an emergency, how would people know you're a clergyman? I'm like, you could ask. <laughs> you know, is there a clergyman? You know, that's kind yeah, of my, um, I grew up in a very low church in Virginia, and they've heard me say this before, but our rector growing up when I was ordained told me, uh, you only wear um, your collar on two occasions, Sunday worship and traffic court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say he's the kind of guy the Bible calls wise. Yes. <laughs> well, talk to us a little bit about uh, um, you know, the statistics regarding how many folks uh, you mentioned the census, the great leap in number of folks who are now Muslim, yeah. and, and that number even surpassing average Sunday worship in the Church of England. That's right, correct? Yeah, although w- what the stats will never tell you is who are the kind of nominal Muslims, you know, the people who are, you know, um, are Muslim by culture, and by, um, but whether they go to the mosque or not, I, you know, it's very difficult to know. Certainly the numbers of uh, people who have an affiliation with Islam in the UK is going up and continues to go up. I mean, uh, our country finds it very difficult to know how to manage immigration. And why is that? Not to know, but why is that? Uh, I think it's a direct concomitant of political correctness. That any, until very recently, until we had this kind of UK equivalent of the Tea Party emerge who are very keen on stemming uh, immigration, taking us out of Europe, etc., etc. Politicians wouldn't even, the, the very thought that you had mentioned immigration made you immediately a racist. And, and of course, there's no doubt about it that talking about immigration can become a Trojan horse for a lot of racism. But I think that most sensible people are not against immigration. I mean, immigration's part of what made your country great um, over the years. I think what most people think is that managed immigration is the right way to, to go about this. But, but we all spectacularly fail in our attempts to manage it. So uh, right now in the UK, I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, I, I, I have a kind of cordial relationship with the local Muslim uh, uh, guy. Um, uh, you know, we're not going to go on holiday together or anything like that, but, you know, it's kind of cordial, and, and I've encouraged him to name more loudly the despicable nature of suicide bombing, terrorism, etc., etc., uh, and he doesn't really do that. 
Um, so we have, we have a kind of cordial relationship with them. There are, there are a scary number of young white women who are converting to Islam. And I can't account for that. Uh, you know, some people say because a very structured religion, you know, that people who've got disordered lives are kind of attracted to something that might give them a bit of structure uh, in their lives. I don't find that an adequate uh, description. But um, th right now, secularism feels much more of a threat than Islam in our in our country in terms of our day to day, you know, the, the daily round, the common task area of our religion, you know, they're desperately trying to shut down. One of the big differences between um, my country and your country, you have a written constitution, which is highly respected, and you know, you have a constitution. <laughs> more respected than, in the UK, our young politicians, it's almost like they don't even know there is a constitution. And it's a very very delicately balanced and unwritten constitution. So if you don't know it, it's very difficult to... That's where our amnesia really kicks in, I think. We, we don't... So that the whole thing about establishment and balance is hugely misunderstood simply as privilege in the UK. And there are an awful lot of people in the UK right now who are out to kill anything that smells of privilege. Yeah, it was the, the big burning issue when I was over there at Whitcliffe was uh, fox hunting. That was yeah. the big... And it was amazing to me because you... Uh, I, I was a member of uh, the shooting club at Oxford um, because I was an American. They thought you shoot things. And, um, and I do. Uh, but, they, um, but they asked if I would go to this protest. And, uh, and I thought, you know, I'm going to come along for the ride. And so I went and I expected to see, you know tweed jackets and pipes and guffaw, guffaw, you know. It's in, but it, they were all country folk, farmers, uh, sort of run-of-the-mill, average average people. It wasn't the class issue that, that it was made, uh, made out to be. But there really is. Uh, when I was uh, there, it was the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar, and I went down to Portsmouth. They put on a big uh, uh, reenactment of it with ships of the line and everything. It was really amazing. But I was looking at the program and looking at the ships, and there was no Royal Navy and there was no Napoleonic Navy. There was a Red Navy and a Blue Navy. Now, of course, in the end, we knew who was who, but they didn't even want to say who the victor would be. We know. Yeah, we know. <laughs> Nelson. God bless him. So in, in, that, in that context, yeah. I mean, you, on the one hand, it, it's, it's exciting because you are other. You, you know, you're not captive to the culture anymore. You know, one yeah. can make the Constantinian argument. But yeah. uh, so tell us about some of the exciting things that are happening in Bristol Diocese and uh, and elsewhere. Because if we believe the newspaper, you know, the poor Church yeah. of England. Yeah. But there are great things happening. Well, um, there are great things. Unfortunately, there aren't enough of them. And, uh, I mean, we just had a great weekend in my diocese with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby who came unashamedly to do nothing for a whole weekend but evangelism. And uh, that's fed many, many alpha groups across the city. We uh, invited any other churches to join in with us over there. We had this big deal in the cathedral Friday evening um, called Standing Room Only. And we're going to repeat that as a kind of regular worship thing to try and appeal to the kind of younger more secularized audience down What does that look like? Uh, it looks like we take all the chairs out, 
Uh, it looks like we do a lot of projection stuff on the walls. Um, then we're going to burn some incense and stuff, and I think, you know, funny, that became an issue of controversy. Just vape, just yeah. vape. And you're yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, yeah, it looks, and, and uh, use of contemporary Christian music, etc., etc. Uh, I mean, who knows about that? I mean, what I can say is, and, you know, part of me feels a bit ashamed of this, so part of me thinks when I look at the effort my colleagues are putting in, you know, I can't think it's about... We, over the last... We, we're exceptional in the Church of England in that since 2004... We have stood still. Where diocese, most dioceses have lost between 12 and 25% of people, we've actually stood still. But I tell you, the amount of effort that my clergy colleagues and their lay teams have put into, I would say, the fight to kind of uh, re evangelize our culture, cultures has been utterly immense and wonderful to see. Um, but I just wish, you know, we, it'd be great to be able to stand up and say, you know what, we've grown some. We've had years when we've grown. We had one year of 13% growth. Then we had a year when a load of people died. You know, it doesn't help. <laughs> no, it, it, why would they do that? Yeah. Um, one last, so with understanding that, and this may be a question you don't uh, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but uh, or if it's too difficult. What what are you looking for in ordinance? What what is the okay. the type of of right. priest so, you're looking for? Okay, um, let me tell you. We uh, s- sort of um, psychologists of, of organizations recently have started to talk about two kinds of learning. One is kind of the learning where we invest in our education, formal education. We go to college, we pick up pieces of paper, we might do post-grad, whatever. Uh, Nobody's saying that's a bad thing. That is predominantly the way that we've hired people. You know, you you can't get ordained in the Church of England without some study. Most of it's serious, some of it a bit less so. And and I I wouldn't want to stop that at all. You know, my, my general view is... A missionary church needs more theology, not less. That said, what they're talking about too is what's called compensatory learning. And this compensatory learning is when you have a major difficulty in you, it might be a learning difficulty like you're a very dyslexic person or you are dysphasic or one of these many kind of learning difficulties we have. But it might be you had a terrible childhood or it might be you know, you, you were degraded by the life you were leading before you answered the call of Christ. What we're learning more and more is that the kind of people we want to recruit are the people who give us evidence that they've compensated for hardship in their lives. My friend Catherine Jeter, who I don't think you will know, but some of the people in this room will know, told me a story about meeting a guy in South Africa with a nice pinstripe suit, spoke with a wonderful English brogue, a black guy. Uh, And they started talking to him, had a drink together. He said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a witch doctor. They're like, yeah, right. 
So, you know, where's the leopard's head and the bone, you know? He said, no, no, no. He said, more like homeopathic medicine today. And he said, but to get selected is the hardest thing imaginable because you have to prove to the board that you've suffered deep hardship and have got over it. He said, you know, I can't tell you the story of my family. He said, but I've had terrible hardship in my life. And I, you know what, I, I just, just about skinned it. Just about going. So we're looking for people who've got a story of prevailing in the face of adversity. Because we think that one of the major outcomes of a faithful life is triumph in adversity. We think that's what the cross is about. I think that's what the resurrection's about. I think that's what the ascension's about. So those are the kind of people we're looking to. Some of them will go on and study for higher degrees. Some of them won't. But our most effective clergy, interestingly, having said what I said about a missionary church requiring more, would be the ones that are less formally educated and very often have had something they needed to get over. I mean, I need to start looking more at Mississippi State grads. Uh, but uh, I said that for Michael Sansbury. Um, uh, but the... <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. No, that, that, that really is, uh, and uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You see that played out uh, in, in the life of the church, absolutely. Okay, questions, comments, concerns for Bishop Hill. If you think about the increasing secularization of the UK and Europe, what do you think are the underlying causes? Is it universities? or consumerism, or just human cussedness, or what? Um, I don't think it's a new thing in history that people are sinners. I think that's always been around, right? So your last comment has a, an element to bear on it. I think there are a number of factors. You mentioned some of them there. I think consumerism is... You know, it's a blessing and a curse in a way. You know, I always say to people, you know, we stand up to give our Christmas sermons in church. You know, half the ministers are kind of piling into consumerism and all that stuff. Uh, and yet, you know, you still see them down the mall buying stuff for their kids. And, you know, so we can't escape from that. I, my own feeling is, I think I implied it earlier. And that is, I just think the church is have kept silent for too long. And so we've become a silent minority. Listen, we have a great idea. And it's called the kingdom of God. And it's a great idea. It's an idea that will mean maybe, you know, a bigger and better world for all human beings to flourish in. And we've not put that idea into the marketplace of ideas. And the secularists now are shutting the door and saying, you're not even coming in here and telling us your big idea. Because what, what's happened in a secular culture is this. It is that the secular, the, the kind of excessive egalitarianism that goes with secularism means that secular governments, secular thinkers treat all religions the same. The net result of that is that all of them will be marginalized the same. And, and that's what you see in the UK right now. You know what? We have to now be uh, obey law that's designed to stop 
Muslim schools from breeding terrorists. Now, as far as I know, Church of England school hasn't bred any terrorists in recent memory. But the law has to apply to us because we're viewed on a par with Islam in our country. That's a direct result of the kind of excessive egalitarianism of our age. And, um, you know, my view is, uh, I always think, if somebody says to me, you know, why do you, how do you get to where you are? I always say, because I want to take responsibility. That's what I want to do. I want to take, so I'll take some responsibility on the part of the churches in the UK for just particularly the established church for thinking it's got a kind of privileged position in the midst of parliament and in our country and we've sat there quietly while Rome has burned. Bishop Hill, you were talking about just the random laws, almost the randomness that laws get passed and, and you're talking about doctors being sacked because they pray with patients and um, that's near and dear to my heart and then uh, there's a uh, even an American chaplain, military chaplain this week that was is being thrown out of the military for 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 professing, you know, Christian belief. My question is: Do you foresee a time in England, and then we may follow, where it's actually illegal to be a Christian to worship and so forth? Um, I, no, I don't see that it will be uh, illegal to be a Christian. I think that. Um, uh, it's hard. It's what, what's happening is it, it, it feels a bit like the Acts Four Church in a slightly different context. You know, I always say that the opponents of the church, from the very early days, Acts Four makes this abundantly clear to me, is if you want to stop the church from spreading, what you do is stop it speaking, right? Mercifully, those disciples of old were defiant. You know, they went back, uh, went back to the um, uh, believers. And they prayed together. I don't know what this means. It says the place they were in shook. And then it says, and the believers all went out and preached the word of God boldly. You know, I mean, I thank God for that kind of defiance. I think what I'm saying is, saying to our brother down the back there, is we need to be a little more defiant. I think we do. I don't think it become illegal. I just think the amount of space in the public sphere for the contribution of Christians is getting smaller and smaller. Never be illegal. They just kill us, kill us softly, inch by inch, millimeter by millimeter. I don't even know what a millimeter is. <laughs> uh, Bishop, uh, having been in Europe and, and seen the secularism, it's you know it's amazingly tragic. Uh, Hyde Park is a place of where speech is promoted and ideas are are debated. Uh, revival is a word I haven't heard you say yet. Is there a movement for revival in England and also here in our country? I don't hear that word being used by anyone anymore. Um, I, I, there are, you know, we have groups in, in my diocese that pray for revival. Uh, I made a study of it. I, I guess the one thing that makes us a little language of the kind of currency of revival is that I think through the 20th century we had several notable church leaders I mean not the kind of lunatic fringe church leader but notable 
church leaders stand up and prophesy revival, which never came. And, and there is a sense that this had quite an erosive impact on clergy in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, I don't know how far to push that. And, and you know, I'm, you know we, we sing that hymn, Revive Thy Church, O Lord. You know, I mean, nothing, nobody more than me wants to see that happen. And I pray for it too. And I, I pray that um, God will constantly be reviving me. So, yeah, it's a word that we, we use, but we try and use it careful for the reason that I said Hi, Bishop. I was just sitting here thinking about how there are countries around the world where we're seeing a lot of Christians have been, or Christianity has not been welcomed before, and I think of China in particular, but now house churches are starting to grow rapidly from what we hear. And traditionally, the missionaries have come from the West and gone to Asia and Africa. What do you see the missionary field shifting globally yeah. and I what does it in, look like? I think it's in reverse gear right now. I mean the fastest growing churches in the UK are all black-led Nigerian West African church planters. I went to a deal down in London one night uh, to speak with 45,000 mostly Nigerian Christians there all night to pray. Do nothing else. Pray for revival interestingly. They had the police commissioner there. This guy's not a believer or anything like that. They asked him, he just stood up and said a few things, you know, like we need a few more people from your community to join the police. And um, <laughs> they're like, you know, you could see them sitting there thinking, yeah, right. Um, so uh, they said, can we pray for you? I mean, trust me, 45,000 Nigerian Pentecostal Christians pray for you. You stay prayed for. <laughs> I mean, it's like somebody stuck a cattle prod where the sun don't shine. <laughs> it's amazing. You kind of alluded to this a little bit, but could you talk a little more about your relationship with other evangelical churches, other churches besides the Church of England? Yeah, um, we, we're, we, we, uh, we're very networked with uh, a lot of the independents across the city of Bristol, uh, in the town of Swindon, which is the other big conurbation at the other end of my diocese. We uh, train pastors together. We, we, we develop this thing of three days in college and two days placements in local churches. So the whole kind of, the, the, the Anglicans and uh, independents are kind of mixed up in cohorts and work together. We do... Uh, uh, significant amounts of kind of what I call citywide initiatives together. We've got the big HOPE project at the moment where thousands of volunteers come together and they'll take a uh, housing development owned by the kind of, um, uh, I don't know what you call them over here, kind of housing development. Would that, does that, it's owned by the kind of uh, local council and rented out cheap rents for people. They'll go around there and, and help elderly people put their gardens in place. They'll do all the latter. They'll do, do all the litter. They'll do repainting and all that stuff. We do that together. What we're trying to do, and this is really difficult, actually, funny enough, is we're trying to get a balance on 
being able to say to the world, this is what we do. You know, we do good stuff. And on the one hand saying, this is what God has done. And we want to be a church that does both, not either or. And, and I think that our relationship with the independents across the city is a very synergistic relationship to help us get that balance right. Okay. Well, I'm going to let y'all, uh, if y'all want to keep talking, you can keep talking. I'm going to leave uh, because I'm a Christian and I'm going to church. Uh, so, uh, if, y'all, if y'all want to, actually, no, let's just go ahead and close. But if you have questions for uh, Bishop Hill, please, can they approach you? Yeah. Yes. He has no I, I, was, I was thinking of going to church myself, but um, pr- you can come in late. Pr- uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs>